Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Unfortunately, today's podcast is really a sad one, but is also a call to action. I'm referring to the school shooting that happened here in Michigan last week in December and really, you know, shakes a community, shakes us all, but we have to quit being surprised that this is going to happen again and actually do something. My dear friend, Dr. Zakia Alavi, reached out to me and thought we could do a podcast together. So I hope you'll take some time to listen and share. Dr. Zakia Alavi is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in General Psychiatry and Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Dr. Alavi is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Human Development, College of Human Medicine, Michigan State University. For the Department of Pediatrics, Dr. Alavi is involved with developing and training pediatric residents and general pediatricians about children's mental health through a state of Michigan and HRSA-funded grant. This grant, the Michigan Child Care Collaborative Connect, has outreach in most counties of Michigan and provides education and consultation to primary care providers for children and youth. Dr. Alavi has published several peer-reviewed articles ranging from polypharmacy in foster children to more recently about COVID-19 and its impact on the patients served by the community mental health systems. Currently, Dr. Alavi provides psychiatric services to children through the Community Mental Health Clinic in Jackson, Michigan. Dr. Alavi is the Chief Medical Officer for the Mid-State Health Network and North Care Network, which are Michigan Medicaid Managed Behavior Health Plans for 21 counties in Lower Michigan and Michigan's Upper Peninsula, respectively. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Zakia Alavi. Hey, Zakia, how are you? I'm well, Leah. How are you doing? I'm good. I know this is kind of a an urgent podcast that we're doing. You know, recently for listeners, I think most people now have heard because it's been on the national news that there was a, another school shooting here in Michigan. And, you know, it just brings right up again that we are, you know, putting our kids literally in the line of fire and just can't figure out how to keep them safe. Or maybe it's not so much we can't figure it out, but not willing to. And I've likened it to using our children as human shields for gun rights, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds really, I don't know, provocative, but I just can't get past it. Oh, well said. I, I was reading a couple things online. There's a professor of health policy at the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, David Hemingway, I believe is his name. And he, you know, I think this was just an excerpt when he had this talk, oh, I don't know, last year, a while ago. It's sad that this thing is still relevant, but he said something about something to the effect of that we really need more of a conversation, um, a discussion in the U.S. about gun control, not a debate every single time. And I thought this is so 
profound because this is what we need. We don't need people taking sides. We need everybody coming together and discussing like rational, sane societies do. And then someone else, um, someone else said, I don't remember whose line was this was, but it said that, you know, we really need the, the gun violence prevention efforts to be in the news, not just have, you know, news about gun violence after the fact, because it really, I don't think it adds much to the conversation. It doesn't add much to prevention efforts. It just dramatizes and I, I don't know. It, it doesn't add anything to, to the prevention efforts. So we need to have these prevention efforts in the news as well. Well, I think it sounds to me, and we'll be talking about what kids need to hear from us, because even those school shootings, I mean, they don't happen every day. And so most kids are not going to be affected by it, but they're affected by what they're hearing on the news. And so that adds to that uncertainty that I'm not safe. And I mean, as adults, I think we have to figure that out, how we're going to do it. And I like what you're saying, not necessarily glorifying, but talking over and over about the events, about the deaths, kind of like when there's been a suicide, you know, mm-hmm. what we need to focus is on is what do we need to keep our children alive? Correct. Correct. And so again, having that, that, that ability to comfort, but then also not forgetting about, F, you know, from one news cycle to the, to the next, which is unfortunately how we've been doing things. But yeah, comforting. And we, you and I, we talked about it, about comforting kids, about comforting families and staying sane through the pandemic. And, you know, the, the, the principle, the, the principle that determines how well you, you keep your kids, your young ones safe, but also informed is, is very similar. You know, you, you ensure, you, you make sure that they're safe in the moment, you know, that there's physical safety, but then also there is psychological and emotional safety, which you, it depends on the age of the child, you know, and the developmental stage of the child and the family. But it, it goes back down to just, you know, no wrong or right answers. It, everything begins with an open, and I can't stress this enough, open and honest discussion. You know, not discussing is, is not an option. On the other hand, discussing over and over when, when the child is not ready or if the child is clearly distressed is not the answer. So let them lead, bring it up. If they haven't brought it up, feel free to bring it up. I would recommend that you do that because kids may or may not want to bring it up because they can pick up on your anxiety and your own worries. And, you know, something I've been wondering about is what is the discussion? What's the dinner table conversation happening in, in families that do have firearms, right? What, what's the discussion there? And I, you know, it's just as important for those families to have that discussion as it is for families that don't have firearms. Now, it's interesting you said that. I had a discussion with a parent about firearms and in the light of worry about, obviously, and kind of the, it's almost like a motivational interviewing. Like mm-hmm. on the one hand, I understand that you feel that in order to be safe or in order to hunt, that you need to have a firearm. On the other hand, we also know that, you know, the safest home for a child is a home without a, a firearm. So is there a common ground? What could we do to make it less accessible? Because 
certainly in this situation in Michigan, I mean, this kid had access full access to a firearm. In fact, at least from what I've understood from the news, it was given to him as a gift, a Christmas gift. And what an awful now holiday. It, You know, I think the other sad piece of this, and before we dive into what can we do, what should we as pediatric clinicians do, is that, you know, this 15-year-old who clearly was disturbed is going to be tried as an adult and you you know we know about their their brain development and i mean his life as they know it is is over and Absolutely. you know so you know it, this family has sacrificed his life mm-hmm. in order to have firearms and it's just it, it's tragic on every level every level i couldn't agree with you more i was reading about it this morning and thinking you know the picture of this uh, 15-year-old and and I thought this could be a patient you know this could be my patient this could be your patient yeah sure. it's it or a family member and what happened because there is no life it doesn't matter what the outcome of the charges that are going to be filed and everything we've lost we've basically lost his life as well you know he's alive yeah but it, we've lost another it's it's not I often look at these these shootings these awful, awful tragedies. And I look at the person doing it, especially minors, and I think, okay, well, there's another life that we've lost. They should be included in the victims of this tragedy. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Well, let's, let's talk about what do we say to our patients and our families that are asking us, what do we say to our children? And you, you began with you know, talking about it in a way that seems appropriate for the kids. So let's start with the youngest kids. And Mm -hmm. probably those aren't going to be, you know, the two and three year olds. But what about those young kids, you know, kindergarten, early elementary? What do we do with those kids? Because they're going to be asking questions. Sure, sure. And, and, you know, first thing um, is, if your child is asking questions, then you've done a great job creating a safe holding environment at home, which also means, which, which is why they are curious, right? And they are comfortable asking questions. So if, if they're asking, that's the first thing that you take heart in knowing that you did something right. If they're not asking, I'd say, bring it up. And what do you say when they ask? You, you stay to the facts. You stay to the facts as in, in, in simple terms of, what happened, what transpired, what was the event, cause and effect, and and leave it be and, and then wait for some more questions and, and know that kids process things in, well, most, most of us do, but children especially, you know, they process things in smaller bites. So they'll come back to you with thoughts and questions and, and that's great. You know, be prepared to repeat things many times and know that Kids, especially this age group, Leah, they really are how we say egocentric. So they, things are pretty much happening in and around them, for them, because of them in their minds. So it's not unusual for young kids, younger kids to think that it's something that they did or something related to them. Or if not that, then could it happen to them with something someone in their family be victimized. So it's meant very much about them. And so be prepared 
to to reassure them that it's not their fault, that it's not anything that they did, and that within reason, you know, they are safe, that they that you know, they're the adults in their vicinity, their community are keeping things safe and we're doing everything that we can. And, that and what about, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just, the, the next thing that, that almost automatically comes after this or with this is, you know, regulating as parents, as adults, regulating your own affect or your own, your own expression of anxiety and worry. So I'm not saying hide things from them. I'm saying regulate your own emotions, your own fear, because for children, if they take cues from you, so if you are regulated, if you are not panicking, then they will not panic. Right. It's sort of the, if I'm a worrier as a kid and I'm worried about this and my parents Mm -hmm. worried, then there must be something bad and scary that could happen Mm -hmm. and I'm not safe. So yeah, that, that, kind of liken it to putting the oxygen mask on, you know, kind of get your stuff together before Uh you, you, you know, start talking. So what about those kind of older kids that maybe, you know, nine, 10, 11, I mean, what do we say? What do we say back to them? Again, you know, you stay to the facts, you with, with these, with that age, you can actually go a little bit more than just the facts. You can ask for their opinions and you can say, what do you think? What do you think um, could have prevented this? What do you think happened? Kids at that age group, in that age group, are often about right and wrong, good guys and bad guys. You know, that's the age when, when developmentally, those are things that are being negotiated and developed. The idea of having, you know, a set of ethics, even of what you do when nobody's watching, those kinds of things, right? So that's a good age where family members, adults can actually engage them in that discussion of, okay, how do you, what do you do if you find something that can harm other people? Do you, you know, do you take it to school for show and tell? Do you, who do you tell? Who do you go to, to, to navigate, to negotiate around a dangerous situation? So that's an age where you can actually go to that point about right and wrong and what could have been done, what should have been done, what do we do now? And what if I'm, what if I'm a family where we hunt and, you know, I'm going to have a firearm. Is there something, and my kids may know it. I think sometimes parents think, well, I'll, I'll hide it and they won't know. My kids have no idea I have it. And I think that's a dangerous premise because kids find things and maybe it's not your kid, but maybe it's somebody who's over and they find this firearm. So what can we tell kids that we are willing to do to keep them safe? Well, and I don't care what side of the gun ownership debate people are. The, the simple fact, evidence, is that if there are firearms in a home, the chances of death by use of that firearm, either suicide or homicide, are high. I mean, you know, you can't have it. You can't have those things happen if you don't have access to firearms. Yeah, you can go find firearms elsewhere, but for kids, for minors, really, it's very hard. And um, the the first thing that, you know, access comes from home. In families which do have, you know, that maybe they're hunters and or maybe I have a family member that collects firearms. And so the discussion there is, where do you keep the ammunition? And what is the message that is being sent 
again, what's that dinner table conversation around firearms? What, how do you view firearms? Do you view them as a status symbol, as a cool thing to have, as something that you, you know, bring out at, I don't know, weekends or Thanksgiving and, and everybody trades notes about what kind of like cars, right? Like, you know, who has what? And if that's what you're doing, then I, I would check that. And I'd say, you know, let's not do that. Let's not make guns cool. Let's have, you know, inculcate a healthy respect for what they can do, for the harm that can come from them, rather than glorifying and making this a cool thing to do. You know, if you use it to hunt, for instance, use it to hunt, but then I don't think that you need to brag or you need to make it a point of pride. I, I, that's what I worry about the most. And as a matter of fact, Leah, the last probably 10 years or so, I often make that a part of my discussion with any new family that I'm working with, you know, just like I ask about lead or exposure to substances at home or, you know, living in a dangerous neighborhood, violence in the neighborhood. I now routinely include this question in my interview, you know, are there firearms? If so, what is the discussion in the home? What's the understanding? Are they locked? Most every family I've talked to, they'll say, well, yeah, of course it's, they're locked. And Johnny doesn't know where the keys are. And Johnny almost inevitably, my patient pipes up and says, either in front of the parents or after they've left the room, oh, I know where they keep the keys. Yeah, yeah. So I had a family one time, they have a son who had some fairly significant mental illness and not great judgment, impulsive, you know, sort of that ADHD kind of kid, older Mm -hmm. kid. And you know, I was asking about risk and about, you know, do you have firearms? And the dad said, oh yeah, I have a room. I call it the adventure room, but I keep the door locked. And I said to the son, would you be able to get in? And he said, yeah, I could just get a ladder and go through the window. So it was at that point, I said, we need to figure this out because he is impulsive. He doesn't have great judgment and this is a disaster waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. And it's a hard discussion because I do think that people get offended, but I think that's something that is pediatric clinicians that we can work on our language about. My job is to assure that your children are safe. You know, the reality is most gun owners are very safe and know how to, how to make a weapon safe. I mean, they know how it's put together. I mean, I don't know anything about that. But I think we need to be having this conversation. What I would love to see is that gun owners really are pushing the issue of responsible ownership. It can't come from the people that are already singing in the choir. We need the other people to join the choir about, we just can't, we can't keep being horrified about this and throwing up our hands and like, there's Mm -hmm. nothing we can do when there's clearly things we can do. Right, right. Well, let's. I, you know, often you. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead. I, for my colleagues in pediatrics and in primary care, one strategy I use, I've been using for like almost a decade again, is you know how I'm having a discussion, how we have discussions about, well, do you smoke at home? You don't, you know, don't smoke it. If you do smoke, smoke outside. You know that kind of smoking discussion that you have with your parents of kids that you treat. I often then segue into a discussion about firearms, sort of using that same example of smoking. You know, yeah, okay, maybe the parents smoke, but, you you know, please don't glorify that. And most parents would never in a million years say, yeah, I smoke and yep, 
it's a cool thing to do. And yeah, I want all my kids to follow in my footsteps and smoke. Most kids will say, yeah, you know, it's a bad habit I have and I want to get rid of it, blah, blah. I don't want my kids to smoke. Or if they're, you know, drinking alcohol to excess, they'll say the same thing. And I'll use that to then segue into this discussion about firearms saying, okay, maybe you, you shoot, maybe you hunt, whatever, but again, treat it like a public health or a health hazard. And how would you approach this issue with your kids so that they don't get hurt using something that is a hobby maybe for you or you know a habit for you, just like smoking, but you don't want them necessarily to, to get hurt. Yeah. And I think about, you know, seat belts, we don't let, you know, we don't let 13 year olds drive. There are lots of reasons that we do things to keep kids safe. Um, One thing I think that is helpful just to clinicians, I mean, it's pertaining more to suicide, but I think the language piece and the examples is if you access the CALM course, the Counseling Access to Lethal Means course on It's online. You can find it at the um, Suicide Prevention Resource Center. I mean, if you just Google calm and suicide, it'll come up. It's great. It really shows how to have that conversation when it doesn't go well. It is a great example of motivational interviewing. So I I would throw that out. I was going to ask next is what about middle school and teenagers? What do we do to help them? Because you know, they're out there more in the world where we can't always protect them like we can maybe our younger kids. How do we help them? In some ways, this is the easiest and then the hardest age group because of the fact that they are starting to think like adults now. Not all the time, but, you know, some of the time we want them to. And so they developmentally, they're working on making, you know, developing an identity. Where do I fit in? You know, what's my peer group. So in many ways, this is the age when the peer group becomes really, really important. And in many ways, instrumental in who the who they become as adults. And so you want to know what that peer group is doing. And that's hard now uh, with social media, because you just don't know, you know, what's being said on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, who are they following? And I think, again, after a tragedy like this, it's, you know, it's hard to go back and, and look into these areas. But I think going forward, it's it's good for us to have, when you have kids of that age, know what they're consuming electronically. So for I can't say this enough. This is the age group where you really, really need to know what is being fed to them. What are they consuming electronically? Be in the loop. And it's not always easy to do that. And I wonder if maybe problem solving with them and, you know, eliciting their opinions, but also experiences. Are you seeing anything like this? What would you do? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering about sort of empowering them because, you know, the last thing you want is that we are helpless and hopeless to make change. Mm -hmm. And would you say that teenagers like that sort of ability to kind of advocate? Do you think that there's a power in that? There is a lot. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Leah. Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, there is. And I think that is true for everybody, families, adults, young kids, older kids. But this is, again, the age group where you can really actually do a lot of good to them and to people around them by, by encouraging them to become active, to become active in generating, in, in starting discussions and maybe providing support. So support groups are tremendous. I mean, they, they, there is so much power in the 
the collective when you come together to support each other. And so having kids develop a support network, giving them the words, giving them the, the thoughts, they're giving direction to their thoughts about how do you approach this issue? What can you do? Well, how about if you start a discussion around you know, safety and, and prevention rather than just the horror of it. Because if we just focus, if, if, if we just have them focus on what a horrible thing this, this is, then, then it leaves them feeling really helpless and hopeless. So instead, if we ask them to do something about it, you know, and again, depending on the community and depending on the family it doesn't have to be political at all. It doesn't have to be for or against guns. It just has to be about safety and about public health and about you know dangers of being around firearms and what can we do to, to reduce that. So just increasing awareness and having these this age group be a part of that awareness raising um, campaign even. Now is a good time to, to do that. I think about the kids after the Parkland shooting you know, that were marching in, in big numbers and they were speaking publicly. Uh, I think the, the sad piece of that is for adults not to move on it, not to hear them, not to act. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we just have to, you know, as adults, how do we not feel helpless and hopeless, but we just have to keep bringing this to the fore that we cannot keep sacrificing our children. No, um, no and, and nobody know, wants that. Nobody wants that. I'm sure no. that these parents of this child did not want their child to go to school and shoot people. I'm yeah, sure of that. Yes. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I, I think we want to, you know, speaking to pediatricians and primary care providers, I'd say this, you know, these are tomorrow's adults, your patients today, right? So you reaching out to them, not just to their parents, but, you know, have your routine discussion when you have your health maintenance discussion with them, right? We, we do, right? I mean, about how to stay safe in relationships, relationship violence, right? We, we have these simple, basic questions, adding something about gun safety and gun violence and what are the statistics and what, are, what does the science tell us? Because these kids are tomorrow's adults. And we have this unique opportunity to educate them, to support them into becoming thinking, sane, rational adults who will not perpetuate this cycle. I love that. You know, again, I think that this, it's a discussion bringing this to light that mm -hmm. it, it can't be about anger. It can't be about fear of losing rights. You know, I think we just have to keep, keep talking about that no one wants a child to die whether by their own hand or someone else's because they got a firearm from a parent. I mean, who, who would want, how do you live with that? I was thinking about the kids that, you know, we do worry about what would be warning signs that would kind of alert a parent. And, and in this case, teachers were alerted, but what are some things that you would say, gosh, I'm really concerned about these kinds of things. You mean in after a tragedy like this? No, I or, just in general, you know, like we, we talk a lot about what are the warning signs of like suicide? What would be some of the warning signs of a homicide risk? We just don't have enough data. Aside from the simple fact that having a firearm in the home raises the risk, we just don't have data. Because for a long time, CDC, we were not funding any research on this very important question. 
generally speaking, what are the warning signs when a child is going to be violent? I mean, I think that that's a good place to start, you know, in the absence of specific gun-related data. And that is like anything else, you know, changes in sleep, changes in appetite, changes in function, changes in their peer group, uh, social isolation, you know, maybe they've become more withdrawn. What's going on at home? Are there things that the child, and, you know, it's sad, but, but true that, you know, most of these instances, you go back and somebody says, oh, but this kid was making these, you know, comments on Facebook or, you know, making pictures saying something, you know, something like, you know, with violent images, things like that. Now for every hundred, you know, a hundred kids that do that, that make those comments and draw those pictures and say those things, you know, 10, not five, not four out of a hundred, not even one out of a hundred would act on it. But, you know, for that one 0.001% or that 1.1% um, of kids who will act on it, it's a tough thing to balance because, yeah, if a kid mentions something about being hopeless and helpless, kind of like suicide prevention, you know, you act on it, you look into it, you you provide support to that family, provide support to the child. And, and that's all we can do at this point. I want to be careful. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I would think that it would be a springboard for conversation you know, sort of the, gosh, I saw that you drew some pictures about shooting someone, you know, what, what were you thinking about that? You know, can you tell me more about it to try and elicit, you know, because there are kids that are going to, I I remember my daughter got in trouble at school one time because she said to a kid, she was probably nine, I'm going to kill you. And she was not going to kill him, but the school took it seriously and they, they mm-hmm. called us and they said, you know, she can't be saying these things. So we had a conversation. She was, of course, mortified that she got in trouble for it. But right. I it think came it out helps. the way it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think, it, you know, we have to also give language to, yes. you know, some people would be scared if you said that, you know, let's, let's talk about your feelings. Let's talk about how we're going to use language and mm-hmm. that killing people, I know you might see it, but killing people is not a solution to working out when you're frustrated. That's a good point, Leah. I, again, um, outside of the this tragedy, just a, a good discussion to have with our children is use of words and how to express intense emotions. I mean, as a psychiatrist, that's something that, that I do every day, all day. That's part of the work we do in psychiatry is how, what happens to intense emotions and how do you find the right words and the right time? Because you have to express them. That's, you know, important, but what are some of the acceptable ways? So to sublimate, and that's a good discussion to have right now again. So in your family, in your home, in, in the child's peer group, perhaps on their, you know, in the social, in their social media, whatever platform it is, how does one express difference of opinion? You know, what do you say about, or how do you talk about people that you disagree with? Killing them, or I hate them, or I'm gonna, I wish they were dead. Those are not conducive to expressing a difference in opinion. Let's get some better ways, better words, some different words to actually express differences in opinion and ideation and ideas rather than talking about giving or taking life. Yeah, yeah. I, I think about, well, a lot of things that you've been saying, you know, that if a parent brought in a 12-year-old and said, I'm worried, you know, he or she, although unfortunately, most of the times it's he, 
is, you know, I found them doing some drawings or writing some things and I'm concerned, you know, we're going through a divorce. There's some things going on. He's not doing that well in school. You know, from a pediatrician viewpoint, I feel like I would want some help with what do I say next? What do I do next? Do you have some advice for, for us? I think that first of all, asking what is your specific concern? And second, saying whatever the concern is, even if you can't verbalize, let's talk about it. So giving that space, opening that discussion between you and the parent, but then also encouraging the parents to have that discussion or a discussion, rather multiple discussions with their children. I think that's the first step. Just so something even something simple, like you're asking me, what should I do? And, and you shared that you're maybe going through a divorce or going through, you know, the family's going through a difficult time. How about sitting down with the child or children in question and asking them what they know? And then again, staying, you know, minimizing your own angst or expression of fear as much as you can to the level of development that they can understand, explain to them what's going on, reassure them that they're safe. I often say, you know, to families that are going through a separation or a divorce, very important thing to, to communicate that you have to do repeatedly is if there is going to be a separation or divorce, it's not going to be between parents and children. You don't, you know, we maybe divorce each other as adults. We don't divorce our kids and nothing changes our relationship. And again, sometimes it sounds, you know, these are just can sound trite because, you know, of course, everybody knows this, but, you know, it's hard to remember to say these things. And so have the parents engage in this discussion with their kids about what do you know? Here are some facts. This is what's not going to change. This is what may change and, and keep doing it. Right. Well, and I think the fact that we're hearing the kids, it, it's so funny and you talking about this, it sounds like, you know, adults sort of need to be the, the ones that are soothing that are comforting, that are reassuring. And it, I think about, you know, some of the newer policy information that's come out about toxic stress and resilience, that this idea of safe, stable, nurturing relationships, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. that's the answer to distress is that reassuring, you know, it's like holding the kid when they've fallen down and mm-hmm. patting them and mm-hmm. saying, you're okay, you're okay, I'm right here, you know, I'll take care of it. You know, I think that 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 we are able to keep children safe is a message and and we aren't doing a very good job of it when it comes to gun violence. And I agree. And and that's where I think we have to keep pushing this conversation because this stuff is going to keep happening. I mean, over and over and over again, unless we're we're brave enough to do something differently. Well, one of the things that I'll do, and there are lots of resources out there, and I'm going to put those in the show notes, but just in closing, what are, what are some words of comfort that you have for us, those that are trying to comfort? I'd say take a deep breath and talk to each other, talk to your families, give your families, your children a big hug. But this is a good time to have debrief sessions in offices. In academia, it's probably happens much more than outside the academic world, but having a a debrief session um, after something like this is usually a good idea. It it brings people together. People can share their worries. They can share something good, something positive, but also 
just be together, you know, as we navigate this tragedy. I love that. It reminds me I'm involved in a critical incident stress management team at our hospital where we as a group respond to when there's been a traumatic event, maybe an unexpected death or, you know, something that didn't go well. And we meet with the staff, anybody that was involved. And it's kind of like what you outline, you ask about the facts, you know, tell me where Mm -hmm. you were, what happened, what are you thinking about it? And then you talk about what are you feeling? You know, what's your experience? Are you having any physical symptoms? Mm -hmm. And then it sort of moves into what can you do? Like you said, you know, hug your children, talk to your staff, be with each other. And Mm -hmm. and it's sort of, it's a balm, if you will, that, you know, we're all in this together. We're all worried about it. We all struggle with some helplessness about how do we do this? And so I think that that's really good advice. I like that a lot. Thank you so much. I, 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 I like those words. You're welcome. I would encourage, I would put a plug in for MC3 Connect because know that we we're there for you guys. We can, if you have a difficult case, if you have, if you're concerned about the mental health of a child, you're working with a family that, you know, perhaps this is an issue that you don't know how to address. Give us a shout out, you know, reach out to us. That's that's a great advice. That is great advice. I'll make sure that I include the Michigan information. I would remind um, listeners that are out of state or, you know, that may need to talk with a psychiatry colleague, that there are other child psychiatry access programs across the country Mm -hmm. and more and more are developing. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm going to put a link to the a national network of child psychiatry access programs and a map. So you can actually go and see it will be being updated because there was federal funding now to expand right. it. So that's a great suggestion. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Well, listen, I know having me. Yeah. of course, well, thanks for reaching out and saying we needed to do this and you know, this will air, it will be in December coming up still the next few days. And I just want to say to all the listeners out there, you know, with the holidays approaching, whichever holiday that you celebrate, or just the joining of families that we have a chance to remember that it's, you know, it's each other that gives us comfort. And we are social beings, we want to protect our young. I mean, that's, that's what we, we are mammals and that's what we do because we, we have to for our own survival. So, well, thank you so much, Zakia, and I hope you are well and can enjoy your family. Thank you very much. And same to you, Leah. Thank you. This is such a difficult topic and I want to thank all of you for taking time to listen and hope you find some advice and comfort in Dr. Alavi's words. So here are my takeaways. Number one, I really want to thank Dr. Alavi for really asking me to do this podcast and then for offering her time on such incredibly short notice. This is a two-day turnaround. Number two, the school shooting in Michigan continues to highlight that we as adults and as a society value guns over children. We are using our children as human shields for gun rights and literally placing them in the line of fire. This horrifies me. Not only are there the victims of the shooting, but also the life of the shooter is over. He is 15, being tried as an adult, and will likely face life in prison. Number three, our job as adults is to protect our young, 
to create safe spaces, to offer safe, stable, nurturing relationships. We must do better. Number four, so what do we say to our kids and our families who need to know how we move forward? First, we must check our own emotional state. This is upsetting. And for those of you that have children in school, can only make you worried. We will fear for our own children. And when we send them to school, we worry about, you know, their safety and the school safety. But we have to remember to first put on the oxygen mask, take a deep breath, and be willing to listen to our kids and have open and honest discussions. So what do we say? Number five, for our youngest children, remember that they are egocentric and that the world in their mind revolves around them. Let them lead and give them facts. Then reassure them that they are safe and that you and their school are doing everything you can to keep them safe. Number six, for older elementary kids, elicit their opinions. What do they think could prevent this from happening? What do they think went wrong? They have strong beliefs about right and wrong, good guys and bad guys, good and evil. Speak to their set of ethics and check your own, right? Number seven, our middle schoolers and teens are what Dr. Alavi says are the easiest and the hardest. They have the language and the cognitive ability to think about the world, but they will also ask the hard questions. Why are we letting this happen? Encourage them to become active with their peers and to have hard conversations about regulating intense emotions. Number eight, the biggest job is what we do. What do we do next? Talk to parents about guns in the house. We have to have these conversations. This is not political. It is about safety and about our children's lives. No parent wants a child to murder others or to die by suicide. So we need to act. We have to ask the questions. Just like Dr. Lavi said, you know, I ask about lead in the home. I ask about community violence. I ask about smoking in the home. And we have to ask about guns in the home. Number nine, don't glorify guns. Number 10, if there is a gun in the home, ask how it is stored. Is it in a gun safe? Is there a trigger lock? Is ammunition stored safely? We have to give our families the right information about how to store their firearms safely if they cannot remove them from the home. I will include in the resources information from the American Academy of Pediatrics about gun safety and storage. Number 11, talk about intense emotions and the use of words and threats. Violence is not a strategy. Number 12, when should a parent worry about their child being either a risk to themselves or to others? Think about the warning signs for suicide because there is an overlap. Things like sleep disturbances, poor school performance, irritability, isolation. If there's a history of mental illness, that should also be something to consider. And exposure to violence, both intimate partner violence and physical sexual abuse and neglect. Number 13, what do we do? Well, we can talk frankly with our patients and families. And then we can talk with our partners and staff. Dr. Alavi suggested, and I think it's a brilliant idea, hold office debriefs. Review the facts. What are your thoughts about this? How are you feeling? Are you having any symptoms? And what are you doing for self-care and safety in your own home? Number 14, reach out to your friendly child and adolescent psychiatrists. And if there are 
child psychiatry access programs in your state, and I'll include the map for the location of those. And for those of you who don't have them, know that many are coming because of new HRSA funding. But if you're worried about a kid for any reason, feel free to call and talk with a child psychiatrist because sometimes they have insights about how to ask questions that we might not have thought of. And number 15, finally, again, this is a call to action. We cannot let kids down. Now is the time for change. Thank you so much for listening today, and I hope you are safe, and I hope that you are able to find some time for your loved ones this holiday season, whatever holiday that you celebrate. Thank you for listening with me over the past year, and I hope that you found some useful information. I know I have. Please feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram site at Pediatric Meltdown or on my email, gaginol at medicalbhs.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.